partial weapon or a partial cue, I can pick up what that cue means um, so that as soon as I see it, straight away I know what response I need to make to that, whether I don't need to worry about it, whether it, um, you know, if it's a friendly weapon, then it offers me protection or security because now there's two of us. I'm not alone anymore. Two of us is much better than one of us in these environments. Um, sort of thing where if it's a, a foreign weapon or it's obscured, I have to make a split-second decision about what that cue represents. So I've got to perceive that cue and then depending on my capacity for that level of threat or that intensity of threat as to how much time I'm going to allow to pass to pick up more information to make a more accurate perception or identification of what it is so I know what it means. If I have a very low threshold for threat and it part of it re even resembles a threat to me, then I'm likely to respond to avoid harm to myself. So Dan, I know that you you've been a soldier in the past, and you the, the, what spurred the conversation between you and I was a little bit of um, a discussion around resilience and and cold exposure, and we were looking at it from I reckon a different context in terms of the individuals that we might be serving, um, and that just led to us to go, hey, let's just jump on and have a bit of a chat on this, and then. It was more likely a beer, but the fact that I'm in Indonesia and <laughs> you're over there, that it's yeah. jumped onto a podcast. And I think we can really deliver some value to people who are looking into resilience. And I know that that's what you research. And I think people do get confused with what resilience is. Uh, and that's the sort of stuff I want to talk about. But first, let's just do an introduction of you know, who you are, your history, your background, and, and where you're at now. Yeah, yeah, perfect. Um, and like you said, I think a big thing is that context. Um, that really matters when people talk about things. Sort of thing. So like you said, I come at things from one context, you come from another, and your listeners are going to have their own context. Sort of thing. So um, I think that's an important thing for people to always remember when they're listening to people or looking at information um, sort of thing. So like a lot of what I said say will be in the context of my experiences, the people that I work with, these sort of things. So um, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's certain or that that's the way it is. It's just it works within that context. Uh, so getting into the background, so I grew up uh, outside Sydney and New South Wales, sort of in the lower Blue Mountains area there. So I was always running around in the bush, playing around a lot, kind of had a bit of freedom to go and explore. Um, and parents sort of were pretty good in the way that they'd let me go and explore with that safety net. If something went wrong, I could always come home and there was all that safety at home sort of thing. So I think that's, for me, looking back, that was vitally important in developing a lot of what I was able to use later in life sort of thing. So I had really good network growing up around family, sort of close family and then extended family. Um, and then when I left school, I didn't do real well at school, um, sort of lost interest in the area I was in. There was a lot of sort of drinking, dope smoking, those sort of things. It was far enough out of Sydney that wasn't a lot going on and people were growing marijuana in their backyard almost or in their creeks sort of thing. So I was kind of started to get into that rut a little bit around year 11 and 12, I was doing quite well up until then. HSC, I kind of failed dismally. So university was off the cards. And I sort of wanted to become a marine biologist because I was interested in the ocean or a helicopter pilot. And both of those were out of the question. So I went and did a cabinet maker's apprenticeship. That was sort of on the back of, I came from a family of trades. So doing a trade was considered, you know, the safe option. You know, you always got something to fall back on. The world's always going to need trades and these sort of things. So uh, for me, that was a bit too monotonous. It just didn't have the sort of challenges that I wanted to face. And I was just curious about other things. And the Army had always interested me sort of growing up, watching sort of, you know, 
Sylvester Stallone movies, the Schwarzenegger movies, you know, Green Berets, all these sort of things. Um, so I'd always been exposed to it a lot. And my brother joined a few years before me and it just sounded really exciting. So I went and joined, um, did my basic training, had the option of going to sort of one of the battalions in North, Northern Australia, which was just a normal infantry battalion, or I could go to Sydney, which was the airborne battalion. And based around a fear of heights that I always had, I thought it'd be really beneficial just to sort of get in a plane and see what it was like to jump out. Um, so I don't know, like you probably get the idea as we go that I sort of, if I've got a fear, I'm happy to sort of confront it and just to see whether it's something I need to worry about in the future or not. So I went to the airborne for a few years, uh, deployed to Timor in 99 for six months, which was a really interesting period for me. It was a really difficult sort of deployment, just the fact that there was not a lot of resourcing. And I think that developed a lot of the things that I needed from there going forward into what would eventually happen within the career. On the back of that, it was about, I think, three or four years. And I'd always been interested to see whether I had what it took to get through a special forces selection and then whether I could work efficiently and effectively within that environment. Uh, so I had the opportunity to apply for or do selection when I come back from Timor, went and did it. I was sort of got through on the first attempt, thankfully. I sort of training kind of put me in a few limitations because I went and backpacked through the US coming back from Timor for a while. So I was kind of in Vegas carrying on a little bit too much as opposed to training, but I'd done the minimum amount to get through and thankfully you didn't get pushed beyond my capacity. So, so, you, so you, sorry, so you did the, the minimum amount to get through and you managed to get through first time. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> um, uh, and to be honest, it's not uncommon. And this is a question that comes up a fair bit mm. as well as because people focus heavily on the physical they're very worried that they're not going to pass the physical entrance tests um, for me i'd always had a pretty good baseline aerobically and endurance yeah. wise i wasn't too bad so i come from a reasonably good baseline and i'd always kept a pretty good everyday level of fitness so i could get out of bed and do these things or get through the entrance tests and then mm. from there it's just mindset sort of thing if yeah, you've yeah. got the motivation to get through you can get through so i think people kind of they worry a lot about the physical side of things, but if you can pass those tests, you can get through. And for me, if you've got really good fitness, those tests are something that most people could get out of bed and do. Yeah. You know, if you're not a good runner, then you've got to put more effort into it, obviously. I, I guess um, that's where, um, you know, if people are looking at like uh, the likes of Goggins and look at his actual story of going through his uh, special forces, but he came from a place where he was just you know, a terrible fat bastard like he wasn't a an athlete so for him the physical side would have been the issue with not being able to get through first time because he wasn't someone who was athletic anyway so i guess that's where a lot of people especially in today's world where a lot of people are not physically fit look at it and go oh, i wouldn't be able to do that whereas if you are someone who's been, always been in sport you're, you know, you love fitness then maybe it's not so much the physical side that's the issue maybe it's more the mindset side that's the issue yeah definitely I I tend to think that most people on the planet now are underperforming. Like they're well under their capacity. Um, 100%. You know, and I think that just comes from, and I'm quite vocal in sometimes about the amount of physical activity that children are deprived or opportunities that they're deprived. And I know there's a lot of, the world's busy and there's a lot of limitations of people trying to pay mortgages and all these sort of things. And there's restrictions in the schools around litigation and safety and that sort of thing. But I think we take away the opportunities for kids to be active so they don't develop those behaviours, they don't develop the attitude mm. towards physical behaviour. 
they sort of they miss that critical period going through puberty and through those sort of teen years where they can develop. And then when they're adults, they're sort of we're just very sedentary in Western society. So I think there's a lot of people out there who are underperforming. And as a child, like it's the environment you're in, it's not really your fault. And then oh yeah, it takes. I, I, a- I agree with that. Like going back to the context of the frame that you started setting this at is that when you were younger and you were, you know, you were, you're the outback, you're out in the, the field all the time and just were allowed to explore. And you knew that home was safety, but you could push your limits and your boundaries by, I guess, pushing that fear that you, you do, you know, you dive right in. How much can you do? I remember as a child climbing up some, some tree that maybe it was maybe five, six, seven meters. And I was probably only seven years old, swinging off a branch and falling. <laughs> <laughs> thinking I thinking I've broken my back and then like two minutes later I'm oh, I'm fine and like but you know we don't really see kids around on the the fields anymore or or just exploring like that on their own I was with I think I was with my older brother two years two years older and that was it I go home didn't dare tell my parents that that happened because they probably go all right you're not going back out again yeah yeah I think we sort of we're a bit over safe and I'm a parent so I can see it um yep. so like it it does take a lot of sort of constraint in your own fears to give your children enough leash to go and do things sort of things. I've spoken to people before about to a point I've had to reconcile my children's mortality so that, okay, there's honestly, there's low risk or low probability. A lot of these things that we're afraid of, Mm. when you look at the incidences in society, these Western society is pretty safe, but we always think if something's going to happen, it will happen to us or happen to our children. So then we're worried about the fact that they could get hurt, they could get injured, um, you know, and I use sort of references from, you know, early American pioneers where they'd cross Indian country, like pioneering across America, knowing that two out of the six kids is probably not going to make it sort of thing. Yeah. So, you know, I kind of, and no parent ever wants to think about their child's mortality, but to let your child really live, you have to understand that, yeah, they might get injured, things might happen, they're very low probability, but you have to understand it happens, otherwise... I feel, and this is kind of my opinion, but I think there's a lot of good science out there that supports it. If you keep your children too close hold, then you're depriving them of a lot of the development they need to understand the environment, a lot of the cognitive development that they need around risk assessment, around taking risks, about having responsibility, about finding what's unique for them. And then you risk becoming the actual mechanism of behaviours later in life that put them on these paths into sort of coping behaviours where they go and get into gangs to find their unique sort of personality, their unique traits. They take mm. risks in crime and these sort of things. Um, and there's some really good books I've read that kind of show that, you know, there is a big risk that this is some of the things that are happening. So for me, as a parent, it's kind of giving them, them the appropriate opportunity to go and explore the environment, take the risks, learn out who they are, you know, develop cognitively, physically, mm. you know, start to understand things, understand who they are, how they work within the world. And hopefully that works. I know in 30 years' time, I guess I'll find out. Um, but- <laughs> no, I, I, I agree. I think there's definitely a positive to allowing your child to push the boundaries in terms of their comfort or discomfort and I guess allowing them to fall and know that it's okay to fall and get back up yeah. again. Yeah, and that's critical. Um, that comes everywhere. Like when we talk about psychological safety, it's a big thing these days. Um, you know, but your children, that's literally one of their most primitive needs is to have emotionally available parents. So they come home and they feel psychologically safe within the home because everyone wants to feel safe. If you're not safe within the home, you're going home to a threat. So you've always got that sort of 
um, hypervigilance around threats and then you carry that through life, that part of your brain develops really, really well. And there's some really mm. good evidence showing that that overdevelops and then you just become a really excellent threat detection machine. But there's a lot of false positives as to what's threat sort of, of thing. Um, so that safety is critical because if you go out, you get injured, you need somewhere or space to come and recover, somewhere to know that it's safe. And if that's not home, then, you know, where can you feel safe? And I yeah. think that's what a lot of children are missing as well. Uh, I, th- I think there was even in the, the the paper about that combat medic resilience that you sent over. There was a there was a small bit that really jumped out to me into there was about where the concept where a soldier looks at a medic and he doesn't have a band aid. He was like for the medics, like, well, it's just a band aid. It's just a small thing for him. But the the other side of it is like the soldiers looking at you and going, "You should have the band aid. You're the one that's meant to keep me safe." I think, and also. It was a small bit in there where it even said the fact that if a, a soldier comes to you because you've got a paper cut, it's not they want the paper cut fixed. It's actually the connection they want to yeah. a real connection to say someone's there for me. I think that's that childlike behavior coming out in a in a in a state of potentially fear that's maybe subdued or suppressed. Yeah, I think you see that even with parents, like you see that in relationships, you see that in a lot. Um, of course, where, it's human, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> Somebody, and I can't remember there's a researcher, but he looks at it, and it's one of the big metrics that he looks at around whether relationships will last or whether they won't last. So people will start a conversation, and it could be trivial, meaning it could be literally nothing, but they're almost probing to see whether their partner or whether their parent or whether you know a colleague or whoever it is is actually willing to listen and hear them mm-hmm. sort of thing. Like they just want that interaction, like the story or whatever it is they're saying is just the actual trivial piece to open up that interaction. Like they're almost searching to avoid the discomfort of isolation. And when we're yeah. under stress or we're hurt or anything like that, isolation is one of our biggest fears because when you, I kind of look at it, if you think back to primitive survival, when we're part of the food chain, you know, if you're kicked out of the cave, then life's going to be really difficult out there. So you want to make sure that, you know, you've got help because if there's two of you, your chances are stronger. If there's three, then it's stronger again. And then as the, the tribe gets bigger or the group gets bigger, then, you know, your chances of survival not being eaten increase. Um, and I think you see that a lot now with fears. You know, people recruit around their fear because they just want to feel safe. You mm. know what I mean? And like, that might explain some of these behaviours you see on the internet and that where people are on there cooking off about different things or, you know, really kind of getting on there and being vocal about different things. They're probably just afraid and they want someone to say, you know, it's okay, we see you, we understand, you know, it's not that, that bad. But yeah, instead you get a, a whole it's, heap of conflict. Well, it is. It's just it's a, it's, it's being a part of something. Um, and I, I know that people who just this Christmas who have gone through um, issues with their whole family being vaccinated and him making a decision not to and being excluded from the Christmas dinner and, like, they had to know that caused a breakdown in him, but like yeah. he was, but like it was like okay, well you, that goes back as you you're being rejected by your own safety. Yeah, yeah. Like that, that impact that it has on you psychology, <laughs> psychologically is, is 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 hard. But I also said to him before the Christmas dinner, I was like, look, I want you to really reflect on whether your belief in the vaccine or not is coming from your desire to be ex- included in the anti-vaxxers or whether it's to be excluded from the family and wanting them to give you attention because that's the way you get love from your family. And that he, yep. had, to, he had to dive deep on that because it was like, okay, are you trying to be inclusive in this group or inclusive in this group? Which one do you want? 
because they're not yeah. going to make it. They're not going to make that decision for you, and you get the choice. Yeah, and there's a lot of stuff, John, that kids will um, act out because ultimately, if a parent comes to intervene, it shows deep down the parent cares for them. So now they go, okay, someone does love me. I feel I can feel safe in this environment. But I think if you're rejected by a family, I think that's probably one of the toughest things that you can experience. Mm-hmm. I mean, and then there's a heap of research around people that have been abandoned and these sort of things. They'll never let anyone in close. So whenever someone gets close, they act out as almost a, a mechanism to avoid being rejected again. They get on the front foot, make sure yeah. that you know they they're the ones that put that petition in out of fear and out of that safety sort of thing. Um, I think that's also works uh, a lot of the uh, antisocial behaviours and your borderline personality disorders, which is basically female antisocial behaviour, uh, just acted out differently. Comes from it's not it's not having that safety or being rejected by the family from a very early age. Yeah, um, I studied, I look more at male stuff. I've got two boys, so I think some kind of bias towards it. Yeah. Um, but I know some of the stuff I see shows that the female antisocial behaviour is on the increase um, and just some of the the local uh, statistics or law enforcement will say that, you know, there's evidence to suggest the same sort of thing. Um, but, again, when you look at it, like there's so much pressure on young girls now on social media to be a certain sort of image and that sort of thing. Like it's well beyond what it ever was. Like their friends are posting fake lives, almost sort of thing. So you, know, like you can see how you can get into a position where life's just not comfortable and then you get all these things going on around it. Um, I don't have the solutions to these except the only thing I have seen is that a really nurturing home or a home where there is a lot of safety is the best buffer for all these sort of things. So like even against bullying, these sort of things, if you've got really emotionally available parents, you've got really good nurturing, you've got good relationships at home and you can have these open conversations and discuss things with a bit of transparency and no teenager is ever going to tell you the full facts. Um, but if you create the environment, then that seems to be a really good buffer. But then you sort of get parents now where, you know, the standard of living is really difficult to maintain in Australia. So, you know, parents are under a lot of pressure. Workplace has a lot of pressure. So you get these households where they're just, through no fault of anyone, the environment's just suboptimal because of all the pressure on people. So now you could look at, okay, how do I make space where I can be available at home for relationships, for children? You know, how can I make sure that we're comfortable and accommodated in our needs mm. but ensure that the environment is what it needs to be? Sort of thing. So I see that as one of the real difficulties, sort of thing, because it, life is getting more and more complex and it's getting faster and faster. And like our consumerism now is just taking over everything from what I sort of see. Yeah, of course. Now, there's a financial uh, stress or financial tension on your family, and, and you're a, a main provider, male or female. And for example, over in WA, obviously, there's a lot of the FIFO workers who earn a good amount of cash, but they spend oh, yeah. they, they spend half their life away from their family. It's like, yep. okay, well, what is the financial doing to the uh, the, the psychology of the, the family and the children? And is it worth it? Like it's going back to like, and that's the challenge, right? It's the challenge yeah. of where's the belief, where's the values, what 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 does it what, what's it going to happen to your family? What's going to do? And no one knows without without having someone like a behavioral psychologist or a psychologist. Well, the education behind you, which you know, people are not going to study that. You don't learn that necessarily just through life in general. Um, and I think there's you know, school doesn't teach that. 
Ah, school's like, I just say school is kind of like an academic sweatshop. Um, Pretty much. Yeah, but like when I was in Perth, um, we were away a lot sort of thing. So I was there within Special Forces for I think it was about 17 or 18 years. Um, mm. And I didn't have children until the last few years sort of thing. So I was quite late in my career sort of thing. We'll get on. And we're almost at that point where you're starting to get on that borderline of almost being too old. So like it's, you know, you either have children now or it's you're going to run into complications. Um but, and we were away a lot. So we were, unlike fly and fly out, we didn't have a schedule. We might go away for two weeks, come back for a week, go away for six months, come back for four weeks sort of thing. It was really variable in our sort of schedule, but it would be anywhere between sort of six to nine months a year we'd be away. And I didn't have children at the time. My wife was quite busy doing her thing, um, which worked for her because she had her own interest to keep occupied while I was away. And it wasn't really a deliberate decision about children, just kind of how it was working out. And I always thought that children were really robust. If I was away, it wouldn't really make a big difference that I'd come back, sort of move in and out. And I kind of, it was a real misconception on my behalf, I think. And thankfully, we didn't have kids because I don't think it would have worked out as well for them. Because, um, you know, I sort of looked at some of the countries we were going to, those kids were pretty sort of robust and resilient, and they didn't really have a lot of structure in their family environments that I sort of thought that they needed or could need. Um, and then I looked at sort of older models, you know, like Vikings. You know, Vikings used to go away a lot all the time. They come back, their kids are okay. Maybe the kids, I don't know if the kids were, they were pretty aggressive. You know, like if you look at their behaviours, maybe it's a really bad model to use. Um, and then the more I learn, I realised that, you know, if I go away and come back, I'm disrupting the house, I'm disrupting my wife's routine, I'm disrupting the kids. Like I become the problem the way that I'm being a transient father like that. And then the more and more I looked at it, as I got older, I realised it's a, it's really suboptimal for kids' development to not have a, a father that's available sort of thing. Mm. I know, uh, is it Warren Farrell, I think, that looks at the boy crisis? He talks in depth about the issues of not having a father that's available all the time sort of thing. Like He thinks it's a, it's a huge issue and he uses a lot of um, statistics to support that it's like 90% of prisons uh inmates that don't have a father or don't have access to a father sort of thing so like he talks about it has a really big impact so thankfully for my kids and for me i didn't really have kids until later in the career and then i came to brisbane and now i sort of look after them full time so it works out really well for me and i'm enjoying it um but on awesome. the, the downside of that is one i'm not really bringing in a full-time regular wage sort of thing so you have to get over that identity that you know i'm the chief breadwinner because i spent my whole life bringing home the money and i think that's just a really outdated male identity that's a fallback from 200 years sort of thing like why can't my wife bring home more money than me um and i'm quite secure and it doesn't really worry me and we used to make jokes about sort of being a stay-at-home dad was and your wife goes off, earns all the money and just chill in the pool. <laughs> um, but you really have to get over that ego or that identity thing about, you know what, you're not really providing for the family. So you're supposed to be a provider and you're not providing. And then you know, people ask me, oh, what are you doing now? And it's almost you feel like you need to say, oh, I'm, do I'm doing a full-time PhD, but I'm earning this money here. or and it's, like, it's almost like, yeah, yeah. You're like you have to justify where your income's coming from. But Ultimately, who cares, really? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like if we've got food and we've got shelter and my kids are happy, then what does it really matter? Like who cares if I have a small house, a shit car, these sort of things? They're not really that important. Um, well, we've even got the the whole concept of success for many people now because of living in a, you know, a capitalist and a, and a materialistic world is that success is defined by money, but it, it's yeah. not. 
it's you no, know, it's defined by purpose, value, connection, um, or, or your definition. But if you are going to go down the route of financial success and always put success as an outside external uh, motivator, then you don't ever have control. It's the money that's got the control or the external motivator that's got the control. And that's yeah. always going to result in, you know, for example, this pandemic, like how many people have lost their jobs and stuff like that. Like, and that can come along and all of a sudden just ruin everything for you. But if you're grounded in love and connection to your family and the people around you, then that, yes, it's going to impact you, but probably not as bad as if it would if you were spent your life away and just gone, okay, I'm only doing this for the money. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So for me, it's been really good because it's kind of, separating from that attachment to having to earn money or to having to have money sort of thing. So, you know, the house I live in now is a lot worse than the one I lived in in Perth. The car I've got now is sort of a much lower model sort of thing. But, you know, what? I just I do not care at all. Um, so it's been really good for me because it's, it took a bit of time because you do feel like you've lost something or it's a part of you gone sort of thing. Um, but now I'd much rather be available for my kids than to be able to put them into a good boarding school or a good school or give them, you know, nicer things or that sort of thing because ultimately they don't care about the things they've got. They just want access to me, you know, I mean, make mm-hmm. sure I'm around, go play soccer, go play footy, go do all these sort of things. Um, so for me, it took a little bit of effort. It's been much, but it's definitely been worthwhile sort of thing. So I just had to change the way I see a few things and get past a few of those sort of insecurities around, you know, trying to bring in money, trying to compare myself to other people. So I think I've given up or I understood status. Once I learned about that a fair bit, that allowed me to sort of free myself from a lot of that sort of thing. So I don't have to worry about, you know, using money as a status or using likes or followers or any of that other shit as status sort of thing. And you see a lot of that is exactly like you're saying, you know, because if I put money in front of my kids or I say, you know, here's the wallabies, I really like wallabies and then they think, okay, for dad to love me, I'm going to have to be a wallaby or, you know, here's the Australian cricket team. Then, you know, becoming a professional sports player or money or power or these sort of things becomes the identity they think that I'm going to love about them. So that's what they start chasing. So I'm really careful about what I put in front of my kids as well about their belief of who they need to be sort of thing. Mm. So it's more around, you know what, you can do whatever you want, you know, find out who you are, what you're passionate about, what you want to do, what's important sort of thing. So look at the values, make sure that they're sort of well-grounded people, really good experiences, and they can go do whatever they want. I really don't care sort of thing, as long as it's ethical and moral. Of course. Um, and I, I think that's also coming back to the you know, the, the paper on combat resilience is, is the first thing they mentioned was that if all of those medics that had were, you know, their their uh, their team saying that they were resilient individuals. The first thing they said is they had loving families that were there for connecting them and allowed them to be who they wanted to be. Yeah. And you wouldn't necessarily think that would link to resilience. Yeah, but um, I mean, we look at a lot of this stuff, and I think Brene Brown does a lot of stuff on belonging, um, and she talks about there's a, there's a massive difference, and even children can tell you the difference between um, belonging and the other terms lost me, like just being a part of a group sort of thing, mm. you know, where, or fitting in. Yeah. You know, where a child can tell the difference between fitting in and belonging. So fitting in, you take on the attributes, values of that tribe or that group sort of thing. So your identity becomes that identity. And belonging is that I don't care who you are, you're just a part of it. And they enjoy the fact that you are who you are. So like when you took look at it in terms of resilience, it almost starts to make complete sense when you understand or you think about threat. So if I'm in a group, and 
I need to take on their identity, then I've got to guard them from who I really am. Because if mm. I pre- present myself, they don't like it. That's a threat to being in that group sort of thing. So I start to fit in. So now I'm, I take on their identity, their beliefs. I start to think, how would that person think with that identity? How would that person behave? So I'm not being me. So I'm constantly avoiding anything I don't think is going to fit in or doing anything that doesn't fit in. So I'm constantly making sure that I'm not out of character or doing anything, which is me looking for threat cues within that environment to make sure that I'm staying within what I think they want to see, where if I belong, I can do whatever I want. There's no fear that my behaviour is going to upset anyone. So now I'm safe to be me. So I can completely relax. And if I'm relaxed, then anything that comes up, I've got the energy, I've got the cognitive space to deal with actual threats or actual problems, where if I'm spending all my time focused on trivial stuff, then my capacity is already half taken, if that makes sense to you. So it makes complete sense. And I can give it a, a perfect example of, of that. So when I, f- yeah. I, mo- I moved to Australia when I was 26, um, I'm 33 now, so it's seven, seven years ago. And when I arrived in Perth, I knew one person and he worked FIFO. So I pretty much knew, didn't know anybody. So my need to try and find individuals and friends and people around me was very high, especially being a little bit of an extroverted individual and person who likes to socialize. I, um, I basically just fell into a group of people who I adapted my behavior to. Like uh, they yeah. were, uh, I knew you now coming from a background of being a bit of a boisterous boy, rugby boy, coming up from an all boys school, just you know, enjoying the beers as, you, as a, a young you know, 20 year old. Um, I just got into a group of people who like to go out and party and enjoy themselves like that. But rather than sticking to my true values, I did exactly what you said. I, I wasn't, I didn't feel like I belonged because I was new. So I changed my uh, self to fit in and created a persona. Now, after around about six months, that developed into anxiety and it developed into issues with um, autoimmune problems because yeah. I was so stressed and my and eventually had a breakdown, I had a meltdown. And um, so then I had to restructure myself. And the way I did that is I did exactly what you explained earlier by finding out who's my safety. I didn't speak to anybody. I went into the avoidance behavior. I went into isolation and then I ranked the people that I used to hang around with on how many times they reached out and listened to the issues that I had and, and, and how much they contacted me to see whether I was okay. And I ranked their names and I said, those are the people who care for me. Those are people who are so unconsciously saying they're the individuals that are safe to be around because I don't feel as if everyone else likes me for who I am, but for the person I've created. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's one of those things, like if you're fitting in, you're going to act outside your value system. So if you're mm-hmm. acting outside of your beliefs, like there's internal conflict. So straight yep. away, that's going to create anguish. You know, I mean, that's going to create all sorts of problems and you've got to reconcile that. And, and deep down, you know that you're behaving outside of how you want and you're going to try and sort of have to confront that and then work out, okay, do I keep on behaving like this or not? And so that's a lot of energy. That's a lot of anguish. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And that you're in a really high burn state when you're in that, you know, but if you've got nowhere else to go, it's almost like, what are my options? And then, you know, it can become consuming, especially when you're kind of um, reflecting on these things all the time, because whatever you're in these thought processes, your threat response system still thinks you're in threat. 
you know, I mean, like rumination is one of the worst things that we can do post uh, traumatic experience or post stress. Um, I try not to use the word trauma, um, post stress, because while you're ruminating, your, your threat response system still maintains that raised level of vigilance. Um, so, yeah, like it's it makes complete sense to me. Um, like for me, when I went to Perth, fortunately, within that environment, like everyone's different. Like it's a bag of liquor all sorts. So I think everyone's got different backgrounds and these sort of things. And it kind of, it's deliberately like that. There's, it's actually a lot more diverse than people might think. Like when you look at it, it appears very similar. Like everyone looks fairly similar. Um, but cognitively, there's a lot of diversity. But everyone's chosen around similar sort of values. So it's quite easy to belong in that environment. And everyone's just accepting the only kind of um restriction it comes with is you need to be competent at your job so if you're competent and reliable then you know as long as you're not causing any issues then you can be you sort of thing yeah. so that, and everyone enjoys that so it was a really easy environment to go into but coming out of that is really difficult because you're coming from an environment that is so unique and this is where i think a lot of the transitioning from these organizations creates issues is because you're never going to find another group like that because nowhere on earth selects people with sort of those level of similarities with a very common purpose like that so that's when people come out it they struggle because now they've got to go find that group they've got to try and look at their identity so you know if you took on your identity as your job which is easy to do in these occupations where you're so immersed in it um, like you see it in sports you see it in a lot of industry organizations where that's their identity and then when you come out, that's not your identity anymore because that's in the past. So now it's like, okay, who are you? What's important to you? You know, where can you find a group of people that you can relate to like that? Um, so that becomes one of the things that people struggle with. It's just finding or transitioning into groups where you can belong again. And I think the Harvard study is a really, really good example of the importance of the social connection and belonging throughout your life. I look at people who I know that have been soldiers um, or anyone, yeah, you look at the likes of sports stars and then the next step for them is very challenging unless they already have in mind what it is that they're going to do and set it up. So you know, I've got a friend who's a professional rugby player over in the UK and he is probably in his last season now, but he's been doing woodwork for maybe the last five years of his season and creating stuff uh, from wood and selling it. And you know, so that's his next step. He knows that's his next identity. Yeah. Um, but if you, if you're not, I don't think if you're preparing, as you know, you're leaving uh, and you then all of a sudden you're out and it's like, okay, what's going on here? That could be a, pit, a pitfall for, uh, and, and that's maybe why you like, you, you do see many people, struggling with the alcoholism the you know the escapes of the, the drugs and things like that because it's like well what's next it's like where's your purpose gone yeah yeah definitely um like i see a lot of stuff from the military obviously because i spent so much time there um but it's the same within like fire brigades law enforcement uh, sport so when i was at the reds it was a something that was discussed a lot of the Reds is a lot of ex-players and their depression and sort of the coping behaviours and what that leads to. Because once you start those coping behaviours, it can become very dangerous very quickly, um, you know, because they just move into depression and then they sort of start to lose hope. Uh, and when, once you become hopeless, then, you know, it's a fast track there to, you know, suicide or these sort of things. So, um, like, it's a big thing there when you look at things like the Olympic sports and those sort of things. Like, if you're completely focused on four-year plans, and that's – that's a lot of focus to focus on something like four years and then you get to the Olympics, you do one more after that, like 
you've dedicated everything to that challenge. And then on the other side, there's just emptiness. You know what I mean? Like winning Olympic gold would probably be awesome. I'll probably never experience, I'm pretty sure I never experienced. Um, but I don't think that it's fulfilling for weeks on end afterwards. You know what I mean? Like you can't be fulfilled on that for a long time. You can be satisfied in what you've achieved, but you need something on that side of it, especially for people that are that driven. And I think that's why you see a lot of these really good sports players suffer on the other side of it because they've been so focused, so driven by something that, that's now gone. And exactly as you said, if you can see that coming or you understand that, you know what? What I'm doing is not my identity. It's what I'm doing. It's something I'm passionate about. And I kind of will use passion as opposed to purpose for that specific reason. Because if I say my purpose is to be a dad, when my kids leave home, what am I? You know, they say my passion is to be a dad or one of my passions is to be a good dad. So when my kids leave home, all right, cool, I can go do something else. So it's exactly yourself. If you're picking up another passion while you're doing that and you slowly transfer it, then that's going to ease that transition point. You know, where if you're forced out through sort of, you know, your organisation goes bankrupt or you're injured or, you know, there's a, a relationship breakdown which forces you into a different situation or whatever life comes through and you're forced into a transition, then that's where people will struggle, I think, because that creates that sort of hole that they get into and they've got to find their way out of there. And, um, you know, when you look at it, most people are fine when they go through a sort of transition or experience, it's really uncomfortable. Um, and it's just, I think it's around 5 to 15% will generally need help sort of thing. But, you know, I think if you're aware of it and you know that it's going to be uncomfortable, but you can find a way out, then that's certainly going to help because expectation is a big thing around these things, I think, as well. Definitely. Well, the, any unmet expectation results in an emotional crisis, right? So when you have big expectations or it's like if you don't have expectations, it's almost like it's, it's a naivety to your life and it just seems like it's simple, but it's hard for a character who has been so driven not to have the expectation of themselves to be able to do achieve something great next. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I say that a lot too, like um, coming out of an environment where yeah, you know, it's called a special air service. So everyone there likes to think they're special. They like to think they're elite performers. And you're in the top percent. I think, to be honest, I think heaps of people go through that fine. You know, if they did the work to get through that, I think it sort of gets a lot of, or overemphasized just how difficult it is. Um, I think way more people are capable of it. But anyway, so it's a very low percentage. And it's like anything elite, people really enjoy being there. But you get a part of your identity gets attached to the fact that you are elite. So when you leave that, the expectation on yourself is that, you know, I should be able to go in and run a business or I should be able to go and do all these other high-performing things where the reality is, is some people just aren't ever going to do it sort of thing. So I'll probably never experience the same level of success operate or sorry, organisationally-wise is what I did there. So I have to change the expectation of who I am, what I'm supposed to achieve. So then you have to get beyond that feeling that if I don't get back to that level of performance, I'm not a failure. You know what I mean? Like mm. I was there, I maintained it for a bit and it's committing that amount of time to something is no longer important to me. Like there's other things that I prioritise. So I'm just probably never going to get back there sort of thing. But I can certainly see how, you know, if you were a national level player or if you were the CEO of something or you're at that sort of real high end for a period of time, once you transition from that, like there's going to be that self-expectation that, you've been really successful, you need to keep being successful or you're a failure where, you know, I mean, your life circumstances might just be different. If you've got five or six kids now, you know, I mean, you have to sacrifice time with them 
to maintain that success. Now you're prioritising sort of thing, and that can increase internal turmoil because now you're depriving your kids or these sort of things. You know, like it gets complex mm. sort of thing. So, you know, if you do see that as a failure, then you think you're a failure, then that's going to create a lot of issues in itself sort of thing. So, you know, like there's a lot going on in people, I reckon. Oh well, there is. You know, there's so much going on in every human being. You know, when when we're not we're not linear individuals. There's yeah. so so much stuff that's going on in, in everyone's mind. From even you, you, the impact that you have when you're a two year old child is still going through your mind unconsciously at the point now because it's just ingrained into your nervous system and it's just where your body's firing and everything like that. So we we can you can never look at someone as in a simplex way. And no. that, that's well, we can look at. Um, individuals and, and characterize them personality wise but unique wise in the inter inter variability between an individual is is it's massive and we just can't that's why we can't have expectations for everyone to be the same and act the same yeah and you see that a lot in science as well because science obviously works to the mean like most things now work to the mean and the average and it's easy um but it, it doesn't tell much of a story really when you're working with an individual you know like because obviously we both look at a lot of interventions around mental strengths around sort of mental health, these sort of things and performance. But like the, you cannot apply the average to most people because there's always people that don't respond. There's always people that are outliers on the response. And I'm really, I really get intrigued by what makes people outliers. So that's kind of where I spend a lot of my time um, looking at information that's probably not as important to the general population. Um, but even when you go to general population, like you can't just apply an intervention to them and expect to get the outcomes like because you know, like when you look at a study, there's so many variables within that study and so many studies are done in kind of isolated environments. When you take it out, they just don't transfer to the practical environment. Mm-hmm. Um, the information is really useful and really good practitioners will learn how to adopt it or adapt mm-hmm. that to individuals. Um, but if we just look at science, I think that it tells a very incomplete story. Oh, it is because the world is so... Uh, there's so many different frames that we have to come come out from in terms of the world. We can't just look at it through a lens of science because we have things like value. We have things like even like the you know the the transcendent side of things that you the the, the I guess the the mythological side of things that we can't really understand and grasp. But it's we know it's within us, which is the story that we we tell ourselves, the psychology, the story that we tell ourselves. Yeah. There's so many there's so many lenses to having a human experience that science is just looking at a way to bring truth in objective reality that we know. Yeah, I think it does. Like I'm not a gangster, obviously I'm a scientist, so um, yeah, I'm yeah. doing some just specific research. Um, but the, my research findings will probably be contextual to certain areas. Um, yeah, somebody could take that and try and make claims and good for them, um, but it may not work outside of mm-hmm. the environment. I think some of it will, some of it won't um, sort of thing. But I think like we definitely need it. I think we just need to be a little bit more aware of what the science is actually telling us, um, you know, because you see a lot of people making some pretty big claims from small amounts of science. Mm. Um, but it certainly is progressing well. And I kind of take that scientific approach to everything now anyway. I kind of approach it with curiosity bit of trial and error see what works what doesn't and then you know, if i'm completely off with what i was thinking then go back to the drawing board and start again and i've been there plenty of times 100 percent. i mean uh, the one the one one of the things that transitioning away as a uh, i spent 10 years as a respiratory and sleep scientist and then transitioned more into a to a coaching thing is because i wanted to move out of the boundaries of science and medical 
into the area of practicality and okay well i've got the the knowledge of the principles it's like okay when i can i create something out of this now that works in individuals and now i'm finding the experience of working with people is is actually helping me develop the principles and the methods that i'm i'm using um but it but it's based on the individual's needs and the based of the context of the situation i've just just come off a call with a guy over in boston in the, in, in in america and he was saying to me like i really enjoy your work because it's like you you understand the principles behind everything that you're doing because that's because i've come from a a background of science and now i'm trying to apply that in real life situations and sometimes i'm finding that well, no, actually, some of the stuff doesn't work. Some of the stuff does work. And you really have to be able to uh, utilize the principles in the context of the current individual, explain it to them. And I think actually even the story or the authority of the like someone like myself telling that to the person has an impact placebo psychologically on them anyway, because it's, it's just cementing a belief in them that's going to work for them. Yeah, yeah. And that's a really interesting area is like, breathing and sleep and they're getting a lot more um recognition like my sleep started to get a lot more surprisingly um like only the last couple of years it started to become a lot more well known the impacts of it i think people have known it just hasn't been put in front of them so well as mm. it has um and breathwork is getting a huge amount of attention across the world um and it's one of those areas that it really intrigues me sort of thing and this is kind of where we first hooked up i think we're talking a little bit around exposures and some breathwork stuff um because you've got science is still exploring the mechanisms, trying to understand it. And for me, breathing, like it's such a simple idea of just regulating your breathing a little bit better. It can control a lot of your outcomes or a lot of your states. Um, and then you've got all these practitioners that have kind of caught onto the science and going around and kind of adapting it, probably some good, some not so. Um, but there's a huge amount of information in there that people sort of try and filter through um and it does intrigue me i kind of looked at it a little bit when i was in the military around biofeedback stuff um looked a little bit of neurofeedback and we didn't get into it too deep because people just didn't do it but the science suggested that biofeedback training could potentially improve your learning and then some of it was military specific stuff the guys just weren't doing it like let's start out and then a week later they dropped it off because they didn't care Um, but then they're like i'm too good to breathe like that it's like well fine um kind of things so in that environment to me i didn't pursue because it, it didn't really seem that practical like guys just weren't doing it. if people come to me then okay i was like this is how the biofeedback stuff's working and i never went too deep into it other than that sort of thing um and then i sort of i just thought you know if you're breathing fairly efficiently throughout the day then maybe a lot of your problems will go away if you're inefficient breather then maybe you need to look at it a lot more and do a lot more interventions uh and i played around with it but it was just one of those habits I never really latched onto that hard sort of thing. Mm. But I try and be more aware of my breathing throughout the whole day. Um, and then I sort of, after all my deployments, is when combat breathing and these sort of things started to become really popular. Um, and I kind of, it amused me a little bit because I was like, oh, I've done all these missions, been in all these really high threat environments and situations, and never once has anyone told me to stop and breathe. Um, <laughs> and then I was the last, like, in those situations, you have time to stop and breathe, like you've got problems to solve <laughs> sort of yeah. thing. Um, but now it's, it is utilised in training and these other things to try and make it a little bit more habitual. So guys, don't let this um, vigilant system run away from them. Um, because everyone does the first time you do something like 
that even when I went into parachuting, the first time I jumped out of a plane, you'd lose literally all your sensory awareness of what's going on. Like you're just so tense, you're so afraid that that parachute might not open that you don't really take much in. And then after 20 jumps, you know, you sort of, you're pretty cruisy with it. You see everything, you remember everything, everything's quite clear. And it's the same as in combat environments. For most people, it's sort of those first couple, that sensory overload kind of gets them for a little bit and then they self-regulate back to where they need to be. Um, so I look at more the exposure side of things. Um, but I think there's a lot of work around integrating the breath work for, mm. for me, for both regulating and for increasing vigilance and getting people to perform under that level so that they can start to learn how to perform at that level and then learn to self-regulate. Um, but I know you spend a lot of time on it. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I guess coming back to the the first statement you made about if if there's dysfunctional breathing throughout the day, then you're inefficient. We have 15 to 20,000 breaths per day, the average person. Yeah. Uh, if you're breathing 25 to 30,000 breaths per day, um, that is going to make you an inefficient breather. An inefficient breather doesn't actually, the rapid breathing doesn't increase the amount of oxygen you get in your body. If anything, it makes you uh, more sensitive to changes in carbon dioxide. Uh, and carbon dioxide is what is our metabolic stress signal. It signals yep. to our amygdala, amygdala that is a threat. And we can get, people can get stuck in this uh, state of, of fear because, because of rapid shallow breathing, that's, that's excessive in energy. Um, and you know, you, you don't worry, but I've had individuals who I've worked with who have gone through testicular cancer, then had a pulmonary embolism, and then all of a sudden they've come to me for lung function testing because they haven't breathing, breathing issues. And I'm like, well, your lungs are fine, but I'm looking at you and the way you're breathing is dysfunctional. And my hypothesis is that these traumatic experiences for this young guy that happened to him is, is that actually that is, is changed his, uh, it, it, deep within his nervous system has changed how it, his physiology to change how it's breathed. He's yep. stuck, stuck in this sympathetic state, which is causing overbreathing. Um, and as soon as we started to do work in terms of slowing the breathing down, fixing the breathing mechanics, ensuring that he's breathing uh, efficiently and mechanically, uh, and then looking at, is there any way we can improve the reduced chemosensitivity to change the changes in carbon dioxide by using breath holds, uh, exposure to CO2 post-exercise and get, yep. your, get your metabolic rate up and then do breath holds and do controlled breathing, box breathing post that, um, and then doing more uh, CO2 work related to uh, what free divers would, would use. Uh, free divers can dive down to 100 meters and on one breath <laughs> they're the most calm individuals in the whole world and they can do it all on one breath talking yep. about fit talking about fear utilizing models from that as well as uh i guess meditative states for deep breast his hrv front went from a 22 to like 45 like yep. eight weeks now his perceived yeah. his perceived stress went from uh on his perceived stress scale from 32 out of 40 down to seven out of 40 yeah. Was there a period of real discomfort for him? Because um, obviously if he's been in that sympathetic state for so long, then the sensory mm. information would have normalised around those levels. So mm. now if if you're changing his breathing, was that so just you, that change in sensory information become a real challenge for him, like a real state of almost stress in itself where he had to relax through that to yeah, continue the protocols? Yeah. So usually within the usually the first week for most people, if they're if they're at that real high state of like that individual you know, going through that sort of thing, then 
the first week is usually saying this is that was a challenge they were tense but i will i will frame it to them that this is going to be a challenge you are going to be tense and i need you to try and consciously be aware of that to create uh, a best a a psychophysiological relationship with their own body of that you can stay calm stay calm in the situation of where you are and try and just consciously relax your body while we're doing that but usually by two week two or three which is when i've implemented um uh what it's from yoga nidra but it's um it's it's, we in science we call them non-sleep deep rest protocols which is have you heard of them yeah 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 yeah. so talking around you relax progressive muscle relaxation essentially doing that so giving people the tools to be able to focus on certain parts of their body and to relax whilst they're then doing the breathing so okay can you notice the tension can you notice the stress can you now focus on the area expose yourself to it, stay with it and consciously relax it. And that helps a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine. Cause I think I sort of ask questions around cause I, I track a, a fair bit of the breathing stuff just out of interest. Uh, I'm not going to say I'm a breath scientist by any means. Um, and the question like for me, obviously the breath work has its own impact, but then I sort of question how much benefit does the awareness of those states and then working through that increased stress response with awareness and actively trying to bring that down? Like, which is, is it even balance? Is it one more than the other sort of thing? And I don't think, or I certainly haven't come across the answers to it, um, but I think awareness becomes a really key element. So for me, like you, you're training two really beneficial things there. So you're setting that baseline around the sort of CO2 oxygen saturations, and all the benefits that that has, plus you increasing their actual ability to maintain function under increased stress, which is going to increase their threshold for intensity of threat. And that's going to have really big transfer to a lot of things. Like it doesn't have really long transfer, hmm. but it certainly increases their awareness when they are in a state of fear of being able to regulate it. And that can be a really big difference when we're under time-constrained threat response because yep. that could give them that split second where suddenly they've got rational awareness, they need the information that they or they have access to the information that would normally be filtered out that allows them to solve that problem sort of thing. So, you know, I think whether what causes that benefit, who really cares at the end of the day, but I think it's giving really good benefits to those two systems. Yeah, so, so for example, I have many people come to me for public speaking anxiety. Dude, I get that all the time. I've had to work yeah. through that myself. Exactly. But if if in the moment I can teach someone that, okay, I'm going to put you into a, a state of high stress that's almost immediately, and I want you to be able to control your breathing in that situation, and I want you to be able to control your exhale, which is your you know, prolonging exhale is going to create a parasympathetic re- response, then can is that transferable across into that situation? So you know, getting off a, a watt bike, doing some work on a watt bike, getting it so you're out of breath, taking maybe five recovery breaths, and then I want you to control your breath five seconds in, hold your breath for 20 seconds, but start at five seconds, 10 seconds, 15 seconds, yep. build up over the weeks. But then you're going to prolong the exhale, maybe seven or eight seconds, and we're going to do 10 rounds of that. And over the eight weeks, we're going to prolong that time period you hold your breath for. We're using the innate, uh, the primordial suffocation response which is one of the the most innate fears that we have in our body to put in that situation which has for the individuals worked with cross-transferred into into public speaking yeah 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 
because yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's almost like that instant flush of, oh, I need to do something. It's like, okay, well, just go to your breath and just see whether you can control your breath. And I will say that from the feedback I've got, the word control, so it's psychological. It's like yeah. I have control of my body. I have control of my breath. I have control. Yeah. Yeah, and you see a lot of stuff around people talking about ultimately our thoughts are under our control. You know I mean? Like I know let's pop up and I've been in situations where I've been walking into ambushes, so I know thoughts pop up and they're hard to suppress or get rid of. Um, but it does come back to being aware straight away that, you know what, that's just a survival thought based around, in those situations, it probably is an actual physical threat. Um, but for sort of public speaking, you know, and I've had to get over it, and I actually can kind of vaguely remember when I was really little about doing a, like a Christmas play when I was year two or three or something. Like it was a really vague memory, but getting on stage and freezing in the light. Um, now, whether... I've kind of recreated that scenario, whether it actually happened, I don't know, sort of thing. So I kind of loosely have associated that, but maybe that's where my public speaking was magnified through because it seems to be a thing for everybody anyway. Um, so I was like, well, I'm not six or seven anymore. I actually, I've prepared for my speeches now. So, you know, if I can become aware of when my threat response is upregulating because I don't want to get up there and embarrass myself, I don't want to say something stupid, I'm worried that if I'm presenting on information, it's going to be wrong and people are going to think I'm an idiot um, sort of thing. So, like, there's all those sort of threats that go through your mind. Then you sort of become aware, okay, you know what? Like, if I say something wrong, who cares? I'm human. If somebody knows more than me, then great, I'll have a discussion and maybe they'll give me some of their information so I'll benefit from this. Um, so start to sort of become aware of it, deal with those threats, and then get up there and try and get on with it sort of thing. So, you know, those thoughts turn up, but we ultimately have the control as to whether we let those thoughts continue and to sort of manifest into, you know, this perceptual fear or whether we just rationalise them think about, okay, you know what, I don't really have to worry about that. Okay, my slides are good. I've rehearsed this. Mm -hmm. or I know my information. I know the content. I've done this before. So I think I've just got to get through that initial discomfort period where I start, and then once I'm going, I'm good to go. So then, Because a lot of times it's the anticipation is the biggest issue anyway. Yeah, of course. Well, that's just when – that's actually when your body is is flooding with yeah. the, the chemicals that are getting you ready to do it, right? But for some yeah, people – some people – uh, and this goes back to, I think this comes back to the experience, exposure, and resilience thing is, is that even procrastination, sitting down to do a piece of work, the body has to, the mind has to fire up. The mind has to release neuroadrenaline, has to release adrenaline, dopamine, uh, acetylcholine, those chemicals that make you feel alert. Now, if you're not regularly exposed to those sort of chemicals, it's hard to say that you, you're not regularly, but you're then trying to sit down and focus on a piece of work is going to be challenging. Your, your, brain, your brain is priming you to uh, to move. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of those states, like um, I get, I'm really intrigued by interoception at the moment. And I think there's some really, really good work being done in that space around sort of, you know, there's this biological change, which creates a feeling you're trying to interpret what that means. And then that emotion is what's going to be sort of displayed. You know, whether you yeah. want to display it or not, that emotion gets displayed and then other people try and interpret it. And it turns out we're not so great at that apparently or sort of thing or our context is really important on how we interpret that emotion. Um, but there's some really great stuff out there that shows that if I get angry about something, 
it's not a negative emotion so much. It's that whatever that is, is really important to me. Like that's almost aligned to one of my values. So I should really take note to that. And rather than just sort of let anger get away and then start to sort of based in my own negative emotions, should actually look at, okay, well, what do I need to do? Because this is important to me. This is in line with my mm-hmm. values or this, for some reason, that's a signpost that I need to do something about it. Um, so I get really intrigued. And I think a lot of people misinterpret a lot of these feelings that they have as being negative where like it's a motivation to get up and do something. That's their body saying, hey, let's get off the couch. Let's go out and do this. You know what I mean? Like this uncomfortable feeling is our internal sort of dialogue or our value system saying, hey, this isn't us. Let's get up. Let's get moving sort of thing. Like don't get on the internet and blast people because of what they're doing. Like don't turn this negative emotion into some sort of conflict that's going to create a huge amount of problems and more negative emotions for us. Let's get up and resolve it. Let's, you know, start living the way we actually want to live. Mm-hmm. I think that's I think really good. There is. It's, and it, it's powerful, the interoception sort of stuff is now if I went down that route a, f- a few years back and I started looking into it and it's, it's popped up to the surface again, especially with the, the sort of the conversations I'm trying to have. And it's like, okay, well, you feel an experience first. Your physiology yeah. feels experience first. Internally in your body, your heart rate might increase. You might start to, your organs might start to create some feelings, which is the emotion. Then we experience that emotion. But following the experience of the emotion, and there's, you know, it's almost for most people who depends on the awareness, there's a lack of space between that and the meaning we give to the emotion, yeah. which then creates the perception. And then it's the perception we get stuck in because that's the world. That's, that's how we experience the world. So yeah. Like, yeah. Like you, you explained it in a way where it's you know, um, more talking about the feeling. It's like, okay, well, if people can go, okay, well, this is just how I'm perceiving it. Can we reframe that perception? Can we expose ourselves to that situation and able to reshift things? And there is potentially uh, a way that we can do that. It's, and, it's, and it's hard work. And I think that's what I try to do with the exposure to the panic situation in the breathing is using that concept of interoception and going, okay, well, actually, can you still stay relaxed despite the feeling that your, your diaphragm's contracting, your heart rate's increasing, your breath wants to just go into a state of um, you know, fast ventilation? Can you, can you reframe that feeling so that you still have control? Yeah, I guess I sort of look at it um, that a lot of that perception comes from previous experiences. Yeah. And the context we've given to it. So, again, that kind of comes back to the beginning of the conversation where, like, what as a child, what experiences were you given and what context were you given for different feelings? Because I sort of I become careful in the language I use around my children now where years ago if I do something and they look at me, they're looking at the expression, they're looking at the change, they're looking at the, the cues pretty much that I'm presenting them and they're like, oh, what's wrong? I was like, oh, I just keep my time angry or I do this, I'm angry. And then over three or four times, they start to give context to those sort of cues, micro expressions, these sort of things is that's dad angry. So when they see that later on, they go, oh, he's angry, run for it sort of thing like or if they're doing something they turn around and I present that image they're like oh, dad's angry you <laughs> know get out of his toolbox um type of thing so I become really careful because that's the context that they give um 
And I may not be angry in these situations, but if I present that image, that's what they think. So, you know, like it's experiences, it's the context you have, it's the story that you tell yourself and you never, you just never know what story a child is telling themselves about what just happened and how they're interpreting that. Um, but yeah, replacing those experiences is obviously pretty difficult. Unless yeah, yeah. you're the sort of person who's just going out, confronting the world and getting as much experience as you want sort of thing. And people seem less inclined to do that these days. 100%, definitely. And it's because uh, how people are brought up. Yeah. Yeah. Simply to that. Uh, yeah. And that kind of makes the whole crux of my research is giving those experiences early, giving it the context, and then even deliberately giving the story or the narrative afterwards of what that meant, how they can interpret that sort of thing, and then what that means going forward because ultimately the next similar scenario or the next similar event, they're going to use that as their experiential knowledge mm. and their understanding to give contextual perception to what's about to happen and use as their prediction as to what their options are and what they should do sort of thing. Yeah. So, you know, you got to be really careful about how you explain things post-event to people as well. So getting that right is obviously a lot of the devil in the detail around making sure that you set up these experiences so that they're getting what they need from it and you're explaining it in a way that it's going to benefit them in the future because you can just as easily implant a really negative experience that they're using in the future to get a suboptimal outcome you know and i think i see a lot of examples of people wearing the brunt for responses or reactions they've made which have almost been conditioned through either a lack of preparation or inappropriate preparation um, and that liability has transferred to the individual mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so I think to summarise that section there is really what, what we're saying is that you we can only perceive the future based on our past experience or the collective past experience where trying to predict the future is generally, is it's almost impossible unless you've gone in that exact situation. How much transfer do you think there is over from previous situations? So like, for example, in, in, in combat, uh, how, because, because, Talking about combat and maybe martial arts. In martial arts, yep. it's like, okay, well, we're looking at an individual. Might They might be doing certain techniques, and then all of a sudden you believe that's going to happen, so therefore you set up a defense in that certain way. In combat, would it be a similar sort of thing? You see something, uh, you know, an enemy is, is trying to do a, uh, a certain strategic tactic or something. Would you respond the same way, or would you be still kind of open to uh, what could happen? I think there's a continuum, and this is something that, Again, like this is based on the, my understanding at the moment as far as I've got into the research. So there's probably someone out there that will listen to it and go, what an idiot. Um, and if they've got better information, then just let me know. Um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't consider myself an expert. I consider myself as a student, so I'm always trying to get information. So um, like, like as I said earlier on, like a lot of what I say is just based on my context and my understanding. So um, the way I've understood it to this point in time is that it's kind of a time continuum. So we almost have like a startle reflex type of thing. So if you get a baby, you flick your fingers in its face, it'll sort of guard its face, which is that sort of startle response, startle reflex. And I talk about that in martial arts, you know, because you have no control over that. That's your – because there's a – the theory is that there's sort of two roads from your visual system to your threat response. There's kind of a road which is a direct line, which is you're not, you have zero awareness as soon as you identify something that is a direct threat to your survival or your sort of health and well-being, and that's an automatic response, like a, a reflex. And then there's an, another pathway that goes through with a little bit of awareness. And so if there's something that 
okay, okay, we'll talk about combat. So I'll make this sort of combat specific. Um, and then people can put it into their own context. So the most dangerous thing we could do in combat is sort of room-to-room fighting. Because if I go through a doorway and there's somebody in the corner of that room, they will see my equipment, they'll see parts of me entering before my eyes have access to that whole room. So they've got the jump on me straight away. So if I come in and I see something move in the corner of that room, and this has been a very sort of high conflict area, my reflex is to, well, firstly, that's a threat. There's nothing else on the planet that's going to be more of a threat to me than that. So I'll go into a a reflexive action, which will be to avoid death or survival, so my reaction will be to engage or use whatever I've conditioned myself as a tool, or I might just pop back out the doorway, but it'll be a response. I won't have any control over that Mm -hmm. because the time is so constrained where if I've got a little bit more time, I might respond based on my ability to perceive, go through a number of potential predicted actions and outcomes, and then I choose the most appropriate or the one with the highest probability of meeting my motivation. So, again, that comes back to sort of whether my motivation is to solve the problem or avoid further harm. If it's avoid further harm, I'm probably going to bolt out of the room. If it's to solve the problem, then I might, I'll take action to resolve that problem. And then if I've got a lot more time, then I'll rationalise it. I'll go through sort of a more detailed process. So it's kind of depending on how time critical our resolution is as to whether it's a sort of almost reflexive, whether it's kind of a reaction, a response, or an actual decision. So a lot of times when people talk about you know, decision-making, it's not a decision, it's a response that's been conditioned through their training and their experience. So I sort of look at, okay, if we're putting in situations where we want people to do things, then we need to make sure that we've got the sort of most accurate, contextually relevant information so in combat it's a lot of visual information so we need visual information so that when i see a partial weapon or a partial cue i can pick up what that cue means Um, so that as soon as i see it straight away i know what response i need to make to that whether i don't need to worry about it whether it um you know if it's a friendly weapon then it offers me protection or security because now there's two of us i'm not alone anymore two of us is much better than one of us in these environments um sort of thing where if it's a a foreign weapon or it's obscured, I have to make a split-second decision about what that cue represents. So I've got to perceive that cue. And then depending on my capacity for that level of threat or that intensity of threat as to how much time I'm going to allow to pass to pick up more information to make a more accurate perception or identification of what it is so I know what it means. If I have a very low threshold for threat and it part of it re- even resembles a threat to me, then I'm likely to respond to avoid harm to myself, which mm-hmm. is where you can get these false positives and you can get suboptimal outcomes. But the person that did it didn't really have cont- like full control. They were just avoiding harm to themselves. Um, yeah. Turns out that our actual execution skill is really poor. So if you do act inappropriately, then chances are, you know, your marksmanship accuracy might be lower or something like that. Um, where if I've got really high threshold, I might just allow that extra second to see the information I need to make an accurate uh, assessment of what it means sort of thing. So you need to make sure that, that the relevant cues are available there through the whether it's visual, audible, whatever system that's filtering that information. And the higher your threat capacity, the more of that information you'll allow to come through sort of thing because there's uh, like cognitively there's a top-down system and a bottom-up. 
So our top-down system looks for the task relevant information based around our goal or our outcome. So if my goal is to go through, conduct a task, I'm looking for that information that's going to help me to conduct a task. Where, again, if my goal is to survive, I'm looking for information that's going to help me survive. So it, it completely changes the way we assess cues and the way we utilise that information. And then our bottom-up system is just looking for threats or sort of novel information or salient information within the environment. When we become really high-level threat response or that sort of very sympathetic is that we become over-focused on what we think are threats or cues that we think might be threats. And we almost misidentify them or false positives to some. So something that may be neutral will see as a threat, something that's positive we may see as neutral type of thing. Um, so that's kind of where that regulation, as we've sort of been talking about, becomes critically important because it opens up the filter for the information that's coming through because we only um, process so much information and the yeah. more we're under threat, the more that bandwidth is focused on threat and the less of that bandwidth because working memory, again, seems to be critically important. If you've got a really high working memory or huge capacity for working memory, you can process more information. So if you have really low working memory, then threat's going to be a real problem. So these people are actually genetically predispositioned to underperform when they're in those environments sort of thing because they're just not seeing the information that they need yeah. to make the decisions that they need to do sort of thing. So when I look at the exposures, it's trying to get that and then trying to get the threat as relative as I can so that they understand that threat kind of thing. And the easiest way I use that analogy is kind of if you look at snakes. So like I grew up in the bush and after a while you learn the patterns of snakes so like if you're running along and you see something move and it's at your feet, you'll jump. Like it's, you don't make an, a decision to jump. You just jump because you, you need space. You're just trying to create space because space gives you time. Time gives you uh, the ability to look for the information you need. Where if you're running along and you see something move up front, yeah, you'll slow down because you don't want to reduce the amount of time you've got to make a decision here. But you'll pick up patterns really, really quick once you're familiar with snakes. Like you'll pick up the colour of it. You'll pick up whether it's got stripes, whether it's got diamonds type of thing. And straight away, you know whether you need to worry about that or not. So when you're working with something like that, over time, you develop that really discrete level of cue identification or ability to pick those up. So if you're in an environment where you need to become good at something, then you need that contextually relevant information because when it's time critical, you know, that, that snake might move in front of me, it might jump, but then I'll see, as I'm in the air, I'll see the information to let me know whether that snake's poisonous or not. And then from there, I can know whether I just run around it or whether I get a stick, move it along, or whether I just go back the other way type of thing. So that sort of, that contextual relevant information is very much domain-specific yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. So you've got the stuff around, and again, this is kind of me theorising. So and I'm happy for you to jump in and tear this apart, um, <laughs> is that you've got these protocols that we use so that we become aware of our threat response, which gives us really good ability and increases our awareness to control it when we need to. And then you've got these other side or this other area where we have this very domain-specific understanding of the threats sort of thing. And if you combine those, you get really good transfer within that environment. But then there's limited transfer into other environments and again it depends on the individual depends on their experiences it depends on the environments what skills are similar in one domain to another as to how much that transfer goes and what that looks like so you know even in combat i'm quite comfortable going into a room like i walk into a room with someone with a knife 
absolutely no concern at all, depending on the distance. If they're within a metre or two, it might be a bit more of an issue. Um, but for me, that's I've got time to work out how to solve this problem. I go home, my wife presents me with a bill that I don't want to pay or like a problem that I don't want to deal with. The TV goes on because I'm trying to buy time. I don't want to deal with that. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like just because I'm good at war doesn't mean I'm good in relationships. Like those, they're completely different threats, completely different kind of internal fears or internal threats that I either do want to deal with or I don't want to deal with. Um, you know, even playing sport, we'd come back from operations where we would solve whatever problem was put in front of us. Didn't matter how difficult it was, we'd solve it because the motivation to solve that is incredibly high. Like the, the consequences of not solving that problem is you're just not coming home. Yeah. We go play rugby, we'd be 60 minutes in in a close game and it was like, oh, you know what, this game's not that important and we kind of lose the game, you know what I mean? So just because we're resilient in one domain doesn't make us resilient in other domains. Again, it comes down to the importance of us. Even though we'd have the capacity to win that game, it's just not important. Yeah. I think that comes down to going back to the difference between the interoceptive and the exteroceptive. It's like you can you can expose yourself to internal uh, feelings and you can see how your body's reacting to that and you can get exposure to that and maybe manage it. But when it comes to something on the external, unless you're repeatedly putting yourself to that situation in the external, then you can't judge that situation because you don't know the patterns. Like you say, you're not ready. You haven't got the experience and you won't know what action to take other than creating time to maybe think it through. But in a situation where if we were put in your context, that time is death. Like if you happen to take too much time, it's the difference between life or death. So um, I think that comes back to that readiness uh, uh, section of resilience. It's how prepared are you? How, yeah. how how much exposure do you have to that? How confident in your abilities do you have and how much meaning do you put to the situation to uh, to get the outcome that you want? Yeah, and the confidence bit's important because when you're predicting, you're predicting the difficulty of the task compared to or your perception of how difficult that task is compared to your perception of ability sort of thing. And if there's a gap there, that creates an issue already because now you don't think you can solve it. Um, but like I said, these are really unique. To, that's a really unique analogy, a really unique task set. And for the majority of people, like they're never going to have to perform at that level. You know, what I mean, like a car accident or you know something like that may be the worst thing that they ever come across. So just doing the training or exposing themselves to something that increases their threat response or the sympathetic system so that they can learn to regulate it may be enough for them. You know what I mean? That may give them the perfect amount of awareness that allows them to cover everything that they're going to come across where other people, you know, if they're exposed to these high level threats, then they need to increase their capacity, their understanding um, to deal with it. And again, making you resilient in one domain can have an impact on other domains sort of thing. So like even if you look at the special forces context, those guys are incredibly physically resilient. They're adaptive. You know, they're quite comfortable in ambiguity. When something happens, like the best ones don't need certainty of an outcome. Mm. So like they don't, when they predict into the future, it's like, all right, I'm just going to solve each problem as they come up sort of thing. And one of the best Examples I've used is like the Martian at the end where he talks about, you know, you just solve one problem at a time. And if you solve enough problems, you get to come home. So like, that's literally how it works. You just got to solve your problems faster than the other guy's solving his. You know, similar to sport yeah, sort of thing. But those abilities 
or those capacities for resilience or to perform in that environment have a lot of negative health and wellness sort of impacts. So guys in that environment for too long, they're like I was there for I think 19 years, 22 years in the army altogether. So I've got arthritis all through my spine. Like all my joints have got arthritis. I've got shoulders are probably two years away from reconstructions. <laughs> oh, no. My knees are shot, my ankles. Um, like no end of sort of medical diagnosis about the damage that has been done within that environment. Like we're high risk for dementia because of the sleep deprivation, because of the complete disruptions to our circadian cycle so much, like similar to shift workers. Only ours wasn't scheduled. It was just really random and sporadic. Um, a heap of guys have bowel issues because of the food that you're forced to eat, like the large fluctuations in the diet, exposure to illnesses. Um, I think my immune system is probably awesome because of what I've been exposed to, um, but that comes at a cost as well. You know, there's just all these things. There's increased in sort of um, negative cardiac issues or cardiac disease because of the environments that we're in. I know we show the same heart rate, uh, same HRV profile as somebody who's at a high risk of cardiovascular problems. Mm. Um, so, you know, you can say, yeah, these are really good resilience traits for these guys. But this is the, the cost that it's coming from. Like, so resilience isn't always something that you should be chasing in every domain because yeah. so you don't know what the consequences are. Like every time you change a system, there's an unintended consequence on another part of that system sort of thing. So, you know, I'm very sort of, or I'm becoming careful about how I tell people to try and build resilience or these sort of things because, you know, like years ago we'd go, oh, yeah, this is our special operations, they're really resilient. But now it's like, all right, these guys are going to be dead by the time they're 60 or 70, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like life doesn't look great for these guys, so maybe that's not what you're after. You know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. If you're going to go to war, yeah, okay, perfect. But, you know, if you just want to live a comfortable life, there's better ways to go about this. It comes back to the, you know, just being elite in anything or pushing anything to the extremes is going to come at a cost. You know, yeah, it's, massively. It, it's, a, it's going to come at a sacrifice. And I think when people project their um, their wants onto someone, like, for example, like, you know, project, I wish I could be elite at this, they don't realise how much suffering and sacrifice goes into it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think that's like, a, and that's, but that's also why it makes it so unique and so, uh, I don't want to use the word worshipped, but looked upon as like, oh, God, oh, yeah, I look up to that sort of thing. It's, it's, yeah. why it's, like, it's why it's like that. It's why it's why it's called elite. Yeah. Yeah. And like um, biomechanically, a lot of that stuff's been known for a long time in sport. But you look at especially very specialized individual sports like baseball throwers is a classic example and these sort of things that the body adapts so that they become really really good within that environment but that adaptation is really negative for them long term like they got to do a lot of work to try and minimize the impact that has hmm. um and you see it across a number of sports you know and then ultimately if you want to be elite it's just understanding the price that you've got to pay and not everyone wants to pay that price sort of thing i mean you know there's a lot more people out there that could be elite but their priorities are different. Like they're not yeah. chasing that recognition or for them, that's not that important sort of thing. And, you know, I, I would argue that we sort of overemphasize elite to a degree and the sacrifice that needs to be made because a lot of the elite aren't healthy on the other side of that. Like a lot of them suffer, like there's mental health issues, there's physical health issues, these sort of things. It's like, well, maybe we should be putting a different model in front of people so that they're chasing a different outcome in life because, you know, like we 
I don't think you need to sacrifice to get anywhere. Like if you're sacrificing, you're just teaching yourself to sacrifice. And I don't think that leads to anywhere positive. Yeah, it was, it's coming from a bit of a negative vision, really, isn't it? Saying I can't have this and this. It's I can only have this or this. It's yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, I'm going to have to close up, Dan, but I do want to have another yeah. conversation with you again because we haven't delved into your, you know, your your, your, your exhibition or anything like that. Um, so let's let's chat again. We can talk about more about the training and what you're doing for yep. that, and and the concepts that you're using for that. I'm just mindful of time. I've got another meeting in, in five minutes, yeah, yeah. so uh, I've got to jump off. But I've really appreciated your your new time. I've enjoyed the chat. Um, so just to finish off, how, just basically how how can people get in touch with you if they if they want to have a conversation or or, or dive into your mindset or, or potentially work with you? Um, easiest way, I suppose, probably social media. That's the easiest way for anyone these days. Um, so I'm sort of active across uh, Instagram under Dan Cooper underscore MSC uh, on Facebook. Probably just more trivial shit I put on there, um, and then on LinkedIn, and they're both under Daniel Cooper. And then the website I've got is Comanche Group or Comanche.com.au. Um, and Comanche's on LinkedIn, and then under the Resilience Lab on Instagram. Sort of things. So I post stuff on there pretty regularly. Uh, those things are more articles and that sort of stuff. Where my personal accounts, I'm starting to move away from the actual sort of science and that sort of stuff. Yeah, but, cool. yeah I'll, if anyone's going to, I'll put all those things in the show notes uh, so yeah. people can get in touch with you. That will be on underneath the the YouTube video and stuff anyway. So yeah, cool. yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, if you want to chat again. Uh, I've got plenty of time. So I'll take off in about five weeks. So it depends on whether you want to do a, a pre or a post. And I can give you what worked, what didn't. Hopefully yeah, okay. more hopefully more works than the, what didn't. <laughs> yeah, hopefully so. <laughs> what, what, we'll, what we'll probably do is we'll probably record a maybe just a shorter version um, yep. of, of what you're doing and then we can review it after as well. Yeah, too easy. That's no problems at all. Awesome. All right. Thanks, yeah, Dan. Perfect, man. I really appreciate the chat. No worries. Cheers, buddy.